0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven. And we will continue in our study of Luke's gospel. Two weeks ago, we completed over four parts, Jesus' Sermon on the plain. And we ended with a challenging call to obedience, as Jesus explains that, that the tree is known by its fruit and our deeds and our words and our actions reveal who we are, and what we worship, and what we believe, and ultimately, what will be our fate. Now, in chapter 7, we're going to get a concrete example of that. It's a really remarkable passage. Luke chapter 7, we're going to see the man who amazed Jesus. That's why you stop and think of how remarkable that is. We, we recognize that God is amazing. And we recognize it is appropriate for us to marvel at God and his creation. You've ever seen a starry night? You've marveled. You've seen the complexity of, of cellular structure or the human body or a newborn baby or a beautiful sunset. You marvel. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is regularly marveled at In Luke 2.33, when his parents found him in the synagogue and he was asking questions of the teachers and the scribes, they marveled at him. In Luke 4.22, after he opened the scroll in his hometown and he declared that in their hearing he had fulfilled it, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. In Luke chapter 8, when Jesus calms the storm, his disciples marvel and were afraid. And yet, only twice in all four of the Gospels, twice only, is Jesus said to marvel, to be amazed, be full of wonder. And this is one of them. So this is is pretty important. This is significant. I want to know, what about this man, what about his faith caused Jesus to marvel, to wonder? He's just given a hard message, and here we're going to see an example in these 10 verses, of a man and his faith who causes Jesus to marvel and to wonder. I, I want to know what does that. I, I would like to attempt to elicit some sort of response like that. I'd like to aim for that, even if I don't achieve it. We're to learn what real faith is, what real discipleship is, and we're to see an example of someone who, who without even being present to hear it, most likely, is living out the commands of Jesus' sermon in in Luke 6. So let's begin by reading Luke 7, 1 to 10, and studying the man who amazed Jesus. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal the servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you come and do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant. Well, so the story takes place over two episodes. You've got the first delegation, the first group of people that the centurion sends, and they interact with Jesus, and then you have the second group that the centurion sends. What's really surprising to me is Jesus and the centurion never have a face-to-face encounter. This is truly remarkable. This man amazes Jesus via proxy, via his representatives. There there is no face-to-face encounter. And yet Jesus is amazed, which is an indication of his humanity. Before Before we dive into this, we've already talked about how the fact that Jesus, while being God, was not functionally acting out Living in all of the attributes of God. He was not functionally omniscient. He was not walking around being aware of everything. He didn't stop being God, but we saw him study scripture in the temple in Luke chapter 2. We saw him learning, and he grew in wisdom and stature. And so Jesus being amazed says, This is unexpected to see faith like this, character like this, from someone so unlikely, a Roman centurion, is remarkable. And Jesus is amazed. And I want to know what about this man, what about him, and what he's doing, makes our Messiah marvel. So we're just going to look at it in two parts, the first delegation and the second delegation. Let's dive in. The first delegation, verses 1 to 6a. And let's first start by looking at the setting. Now Luke links this text with what came before. And this is an important part about studying the Bible. We can think of the Bible as a string of pearls. And there's this one story over here, and I like that story, and there's this other thing over here. Oh, that's kind of boring. Oh, I like this one. And this is a narrative. This is a story. And so this event, Luke gives us the context. Look at verse 1. is connected to what came before. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So we are to know that this is one of the very next things that took place after Jesus finished his Sermon on the Plain. And Luke wants us to know that. There's some connection between what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Plain and what we see here. We also know he's returned to Capernaum, a place where he's already done notable miracles. If you remember back in chapter 4, in Nazareth, they want him to do the miracles he did in Capernaum. And then through the rest of chapter 4, we see Jesus doing miracles in Capernaum. Capernaum was kind of Jesus' base of operation, if you will, in his early Galilean ministry. He did many notable miracles and signs. Now, sadly, Capernaum never ultimately as a city came to trust in Jesus. If you, if you go a little later into Luke's gospel, to chapter 10, 15, Jesus has these fearful words to say to them. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to hell. So this is a town that will ultimately reject Jesus, but for the time being, they're happy that he's there, and word is spread around. We've seen the word spread around, so that's our setting, the time setting. This is the next in a series of events after Jesus' sermon. The place, Capernaum, we've already been there. The person, there was a centurion now a centurion is a Roman army leader. The title means that he has a 100 men under him, roughly, give or take. Century, right, that makes sense? He's a centurion, and so the Roman army had men over tens, and men over hundreds, and men over thousands. This man was wealthy, as we'll see. This is, this is a pretty high rank in the Roman army. This man lived comfortably. This man, this man had a position of authority and respect in the community. He's a centurion. But this also man represents one of the leaders of the foreign rule, the foreign power that had Israel under its thumb. This this man likely would have been resented by most of Israel in the same way that you would feel resentment if some foreign power took us over and we saw their soldiers and their sergeants and their lieutenants on street corners. This man's a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's not Jewish, We'll see that in a little bit as well. And yet, this, this unlikely man, this, this military leader of a pagan nation oppressing God's people, this man is the one for whom we will see amazing faith. And finally, the situation. This centurion had a sick servant or slave. So Jesus goes to Capernaum, a place he's been to before, there's a centurion, a Roman Roman military leader. He's got a sick servant. That's the setting, the time, the place, the person, and the situation. And I want to notice the contrast between the two delegations. We get some details. The first delegation is a group of Jewish elders. The second delegation, you see that in verse 3, is a group of the centurion's friends in verse 6. So we're to contrast what they say. Because really the heart of the contrast of this passage is the Jewish leader saying he is worthy in verse 4. And the second group, I am not worthy, verse 6. And that's the big contrast here that we'll be looking at. So the situation is this centurion has a servant that he cares for. A servant that he cares for a lot. A slave that he cares for. And this slave is sick and at the point of death. And he hears, Jesus has come to Capernaum. Now, we don't know this soldier's backstory. We don't know how he heard about Jesus. Whoever taught him did a good job. We're going to see his theology is pretty well developed. Possibly, turn back to Luke 3. It's possible that some of this man's own soldiers reported back to him. Because if you remember, in Luke 3, when John the Baptist was giving his ministry, we get different groups of people come to him. Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, What shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. The so soldiers have already Roman soldiers have already participated in the John the Baptist ministry. We also get some insight in the types of potential sins or problems Roman soldiers could get into threatening, false accusation, extortion of money, more reasons why the Jews would resent such people. Uncircumcised Gentiles. This is a remarkable man. We should perk up right here that he sent Jewish elders and leaders. You've you got to bear in mind what a remarkable thing this is, that there are Jewish people that are willing to go and stand up for this man. Jews won't eat with Gentiles. They won't enter the same r- roof as a Gentile. They think Paul brings a Gentile near to the temple. A riot breaks out. I mean, you can read the Bible and see how the Jews view the Gentiles. And the fact that not just Jews, but leaders, elders in the community would go and Beseech Jesus to this man is remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. We'll, we'll take a look at that in a second. But I want you to notice something else that's important. The Jewish elders speak about him. That's another one of the contrasts. They speak about him. He, verse 4, is worthy. That's contrasted with the friends, we'll get to in a minute or two, who speak for him. Notice it's in the first person. I am not worthy. So the first group speaks about him. The second group speaks for him. Okay? So we've got a group of Jewish elders speaking about coming and beseeching Jesus that he would heal this servant. So he hears about Jesus coming and he sends elders of the Jews. Now that's remarkable. You read through your Bibles, you will not find many instances where Jewish people, Jewish leaders are advocating for, beseeching for on behalf of Gentiles. This is a remarkable thing in and of itself. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, sincerely. They're not going through the motions. We're not to understand that this guy's threatening them or somehow they're trying to curry favor with him. It's sincere. They earnestly plead with him, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who has built us our synagogues. Their request, come heal come heal, come do this thing for him. Come heal his servant. And they give a reason. He, they say, is worthy. Now here we we see some of the evidence of Jewish thinking. As as you read through your Gospels, you read through Romans, the Jews have a merit system with God. And these elders, meaning to do well, they're genuinely trying to intercede for this man, are telling Jesus that because of this man's godly life, he is deserved, he is owed, That Jesus come and heal him, and that's going to be the big contrast with what he has to say for himself. But this is might be the natural way that we think about things: if someone's lived a good life, if someone's been generous, if someone's done the right things, if someone's been faithful, surely God owes them blessing. Surely God owes them healing. That was the theology of Job's friends, the theology of the disciples. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? It's the theology of these men. But even as they approach Jesus in a merit system, they do reveal something about the character of this man. And I I told you that Luke has not put this account immediately following the Sermon on the Plain for no reason. In fact, he's linked it intentionally, and we start to see how this man, even likely without hearing that sermon, is the embodiment of it. Let's think about some of the things we see. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain that we are to be merciful, verse 36, even as your Father is merciful, that we are to love. Here's a Roman centurion, 100 men under him, likely many household slaves, who is deeply moved and concerned for a sick slave. he just go buy Another. He's so concerned about this sick slave that he sends people to go beseech Jesus to come heal him. This is a man of compassion and mercy and love. It's remarkable. This isn't the way officials deal with sick slaves. Not only that, but this man has somehow won over through his kindness and through his love and his good deeds Jewish leaders now remember back in the sermon Jesus said in in Luke chapter 6 verses um, 32 through 34 if you love those who love you what benefit is that to you for even sinners love those who love them and if you do good to those who do good to you what benefit is that to you for even sinners do the same and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive what credit is it to you even sinners lend to sinners to get the same back now, we don't know how much animosity there would have been between this centurion and his community. I can, I can tell you this. They didn't start out as mutual friends and admiring one another. This man had to overcome a lot of prejudice, a lot of resentment. He, he would have had to. I mean, he can fill in the blanks to what extent he did this, but may I suggest to you, this is somebody who's risen to that standard. He's gone above and beyond what the world does, simply loving people who love them. There's, there's a sense in which what the elders of the Jews are doing falls into that category. Hey, this guy built us a synagogue. So sure, we'll go say nice things about him. But this guy has loved them and he's served them, getting nothing, he's been generous. We see he, he built for them their synagogue, their place of worship. Not only that, he loves the people of God. That's unusual. The Romans, as far as we can tell, had contempt for the Jews. You can read through the Gospels, Pilate clearly has contempt for the Jews. The the Romans are the sophisticated people. They believe in a pantheon of gods. Here's this backwards Jewish people with their backwards customs and their weird way of dressing and their weird food laws. Normally the Romans viewed those they'd subjugated, they'd conquered as, as contemptible. This man loves their nation and has built for them a place of worship for their religion. He's been generous, and he's given to those to whom he does not expect to receive. And somehow, he has won them over with his good deeds, love, and kindness. This is exactly the type of attitude Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Plain. He said, to those who hear, love your enemies. To those good, to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Go above and beyond simply loving the people who love you, being kind to those who love you. Somehow, and we can only guess, this man has done this. And because of that, the Jews come to Jesus saying he is worthy. Now, we agree and we disagree with them. On the one hand, they're praising, they're reporting this man's good deeds, his faithfulness is good. It's good. But as we've already heard from Jesus in Luke 4, Jesus doesn't owe anybody anything, right? Right? All of this man's good deeds, does it warrant, does he deserve Jesus' healing? Does God owe him something? No. No, not at all. It's commendable. It speaks to his character. But again, we get an insight on another approach to God, and if we're not careful, we will adopt this same approach that these Jewish elders have. Hey, this guy's done some good stuff. God, you owe him. Jesus, you owe him. He is worthy. He is worthy. Well, Jesus' response, he goes to them, and that's shocking as well. Here's a Jewish Messiah. I mean, the whole thing is surprising. We've got Jewish elders interceding on behalf of a Gentile military leader, and then the Messiah goes with them. And of course, this is only fitting because as we've already heard from the prophecy of chapter 2, Jesus will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles for glory to the people of israel i'm beginning to see that already in luke's gospel and so jesus goes with them and thus ends the first scene the first delegation and we're, we're, our attention should be raised who is this man who somehow won over a bunch of jews jewish leaders who is this man who loves the people of israel built a synagogue who is this roman leader who loves his servants that's interesting it gets much more interesting as the second delegation comes. And again, Luke gives us the setting. Pick it up in verse 6. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed I tomb a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So Jesus, and there's a crowd with him, because look in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him. So Jesus is coming to this man's house, and there's a mob of people coming with him. And as he draws near, somehow the centurion, you probably couldn't miss a mob of people coming towards your house, is aware of this. He sends out the second delegation. Now, I don't think the centurion has had a change of heart or a change of mind. And then you gotta gotta figure out, okay, how do you explain this? The first group says, hey, come, come. The second group says, no, don't come, don't come. There's two possibilities. One is that the first group... We know that the centurion would not want them to say he is worthy, because that's not what he says. We know that that is an innovation that they came up with. That was their own spin on things. And it's possible that they interpreted what this guy said wrongly. The, the guy simply said, please ask Jesus to heal my servant, and they assumed, well of course, duh, Jesus will have to be there to do that, so Jesus come, let's go, he wants you to heal his servant. That's possible. Or it's also possible that the centurion hadn't really thought that far ahead. My servant's sick. I'm concerned. Jesus is in town. Someone go get him and ask him to heal my servant. And then as the crowd draws near, all of a sudden it dawns on him, Jesus is coming to my house. But I don't think whatever's going on, he flip-flopped. I want Jesus to come. No, I don't want Jesus to come. We don't see any vacillation in this man. Rather, he's a model of remarkable faith. So this centurion, who we never meet in the text, he never meets Jesus, hears, sees, Jesus is drawing near. And now he sends out a different group of people. And these group of people are his close friends, which explains why they're able to speak verbatim for him. And that's the shift. The elders respect him, but the elders aren't his friends. The elders talk about him. Here's your blank. The centurion's friends speak for him. Speak for him, Luke wants us to know which of these two reports actually represents the thoughts and mind of the centurion. And it's the second group, not the first. It's the second group, not the first. The centurion's friends speak for him. And they have a request as well. First group's request, will you please come and heal this group? Don't trouble yourself. Literally, don't let yourself be agitated. The centurion understands that him and his sin and his condition would rightly trouble the Messiah. And there's a reason for it. His reason, I am not worthy. I told you, this man embodies the ethics laid out in the Sermon on the Plain. And here we see that beatitude attitude, right? Blessed are those who are poor before God. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. Blessed are those who Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Just like Peter before him in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter falls down at Jesus' feet, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This man gets his own unworthiness which is remarkable. He's in a high public position. He rules a 100 men underneath him, and all of them together rule and exercise authority over the Jewish nation. He's been honored by the world power of his day. He has money, respect, authority, and not only does he recognize his unworthiness to Jesus, think about this, by sending public messengers, he was willing to let the entire community he lived in know that he thought that. Now think, think about that. He could have sent Jesus a note, couldn't he? He could have written it down here, Give this to Jesus, and then only Jesus and he would know what he said. Right? That, that would have worked, wouldn't it? This guy sends his friends to say to Jesus, in the hearing of everybody, so that Luke can hear about it and write it down My master thinks he's not worthy to meet with a Jewish carpenter and itinerant preacher. That is remarkable humility and contrition over sin. This, This guy has understood his own unworthiness, part of his great faith, part of his modeling of the Sermon on the Plain. He gets it for all of the reasons that he could be proud, for all of the reasons that he could feel that he is somebody. He understands who he is in relationship to Jesus. And contrary to what his Jewish leaders said about him, he confesses his total unworthiness. He's not worthy to have Jesus in his home. He's not worthy to come out and meet with Jesus. It's reminiscent of the prodigal son who in Luke 15, 19 says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Something else remarkable that we see, though, not just his reason, but his confidence. Coupled with his understanding of who he is. And this is is where I think we get to see what faith is. What is great faith? Here's great faith. Faith is a coupling of an orthodox view of who God is In connection with an orthodox view of who you are, they they go hand in hand. To know who God is is to know I'm not God, right? This is how John Calvin answers the question what's more foundational, the knowledge of self or the knowledge of God? He says they're kind of mutually dependent because you can't know who God is without realizing I'm not Him, and you can't know who you are in any meaningful way without recognizing I'm made by God, I'm not God that those two things come together. We see his accurate view of self, and now we're going to see his high view of Christ. And that, I think, is where we see what great faith involves. His confidence, Jesus the Lord has divine authority. Jesus the Lord has divine authority. Notice that he calls Jesus Lord. Verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself. In the case we're tempted to think, well, that just is a polite address of sir. No, this centurion who calls Jesus Lord doesn't think he's worthy to have this Jewish carpenter and itinerant preacher enter his home. He's not worthy to come out and meet him. Not only that, he recognizes Jesus' power and authority at a level that no one yet in the gospel has understood. It's been assumed up until this point Jesus has to be present to work a healing so that so we see them bring their sick to Jesus. No one yet in Luke 4 said, Jesus, there's some sick people in the next town over because you just heal them from here. No, they're bringing people to him. They, they're digging through roofs to get their sick friend to Jesus. The assumption, Jesus has to be present. This is the first person who grasps if he's really God, if he's really divine, if he really is who he claims to be, he certainly doesn't need to be here to heal my servant. It's remarkable. He recognizes Jesus' authority. And he says, just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and one come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Being in the, 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 the Roman military structure, he understands authority and delegation. He, with a hundred men under him, understands what it means. He doesn't have to be there and do everything personally. He, if you have authority, you can be in one place and have your will carried out in another. And therefore, he concludes, if Jesus is Lord, then he certainly isn't restricted by space and time. He certainly isn't restricted by geography. Notice also, he's confident in what has power here. It's Jesus' word. He doesn't say, therefore, just cast the spell. Invoke the right. Wave the wand. You know, Naaman, he'd wave his hands over the place. No. He's located the nexus of Jesus' power. It's his word. We've already seen that again in Luke chapter 4. The people were amazed Verse 36, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus, how does, he, how does he get rid of Peter's mother-in-law's fever? He speaks, rebukes it, and it departs. In chapter eight, how does he calm a storm? He speaks. Jesus' weapon of choice is words. He is the word. This centurion gets that. He doesn't think Jesus is some powerful shaman This is the one who speaks and reality obeys. Say the word. Wherever you are, say the word. My servant will be healed. And we see coming together an accurate view of self, a contrition for sin, a humility next to an exalted view of who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is worthy. He has all power and authority. And I think that combination is the faith that Jesus marvels at. And that combination has produced the fruit that won over a Jewish community, the fruit that caused him to love God's people, the fruit of building their synagogue, the fruit of being compassionate and loving to a lowly slave. He's confident Jesus the Lord has divine authority. So how does Jesus respond? He marvels. He marvels. And this is a wonderful thing. It only happens twice in all the Gospels. Sadly, the only other time Jesus is said to marvel, is in Mark 6, 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marvels and is amazed at the unbelief of people, and he marvels and is amazed at the faith of this man. He marvels at the centurion's faith. And notice the faith and the man can't really be distinguished from each other, can they? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, right? The man. And turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So he's commending the faith, and he marvels at the man. Because, of course, what you do and what you are are linked. Inseparably. This man's faith is an expression of who and what he is. Jesus heard these things. He marveled. And then the next thing he did, he commends him to the crowd. He turns around and he commends this man to the crowd. In words echoing, words he said in chapter 4, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now that should remind us of something. You remember back, turn back to chapter 4 in Luke. Chapter 4. When the folks in his hometown wanted him to work miracles in his hometown, and he said, No, God doesn't owe you miracles. You don't get to demand where the miracles get done. We read this Verse 25. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine was over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus has already highlighted faith, Miracles, God's grace to Gentiles and unbelievers. And I think Luke, in putting this here, is echoing that. Because notice, what are the two miracles that occur before the messengers from John the Baptist show up? The messengers from John the Baptist show up in Luke 7 16. And what do we have? Jesus raises a widow's son in 11 to 15. And Jesus heals a foreign general, military leader's servant. Do you see some similarity? some thematic similarity, the two examples Jesus quoted them for, where Naaman, the Assyrian, the foreign military leader, doesn't have a face-to-face encounter with Elijah, does he? Elijah doesn't go out to meet him. And in fact, he complains about that. I expected the man of God would come out and wave his hands over the place, and, and the healing happens from a distance. This man doesn't make that complaint. He gets it. And so after listing Elijah and Elisha and how God has mercy as he wills on the Gentiles as he wills, Luke here, at least thematically, is showing us Jesus doing this and doing this to a greater extent. He commends the man's faith to the crowd. And this is only the second, actually third time faith has been commended. Mary's faith was commended by Elizabeth. Blessed is she who believed the report that came to her. In chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus sees the faith of the men who dug through the roof to bring their friend to Jesus, and there's this. Another interesting note, Jesus sees faith, this is an interesting note. In chapter 5, verse 20... The faith of the paralytic's friends caused them to overcome every obstacle. We're getting to Jesus no matter what. If we have to dig through a roof, so be it. We're getting our friend to Jesus because he needs Jesus. Get out of my way. We're we're getting to Jesus. And that's a mark of faith, that dogged perseverance. You think of the woman who is pleading for help and and Jesus says it fit to give the food of the children to dogs. And she says, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs. There's a persistence that faith engenders and creates, and that's good. There's also here, faith recognizes that we're not worthy, and faith recognizes that we, we, it's a fearful thing to come into the presence of the living God. And both are true, and both are commendable. There's a sense in which faith seeks Jesus out at all costs, it makes way, it makes room, it will have Jesus. And there's a sense in which our faith should make us tremble as we approach God, like this man. And then finally we see Jesus heals the servant. Sure enough, what the the centurion was confident Jesus could do, he in fact does. He is the master of time and space. He does not need to be physically present to work a miracle, and he can speak a word, and the man is healed. Now Luke is not fundamentally drawing attention to that, even though it's true, our Lord has all power and authority. By the way, how, how much faith did that servant have to be healed? None. For all we know, he wasn't even aware it was taking place. Jesus is Lord. This centurion understood that. And the challenge for us is do we really understand that or do we approach God like the Jewish leaders in a merit system? We've been good. We've kept the rules. We've come to church. We give. And therefore, we are worthy. And God owes us something. You know, the faith that amazes Jesus is a faith that bears fruit, but a faith that has a humble, right understanding of who one is. I have no credit, no merit, no chips to spend with God. Combined with an exalted view of Jesus Christ, you are the Lord of glory, you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You speak and reality obeys. This is this is the heart Jesus is looking for in his disciples. This is the man who epitomizes the Sermon on the Plain, and this is what Jesus and what Luke is calling us to do. We, we should let's close in prayer as we get ready for communion. That God would work that type of faith in our hearts, in our lives. Lord God, we we pray that you would work in our hearts. Grant us a true conviction for our sin, true humility. Lord, destroy, tear down on us those impulses, those wrong ways of thinking that think that somehow we earn merit and favor with you, that somehow we bring you into our debt, that you might somehow be obligated to do something for us. Lord God, help us to believe and own and understand you owe us nothing. You give life and you take it and you do us no wrong in doing so. Lord, we approach by grace, not by merit. We approach by the blood of your son. We, we draw near because of who he is and what he did and not who we are and what we have done. Lord, grant us that faith. Grant us to see your son highly exalted and ourselves as unworthy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.